Welcome to Roots of Resilience on the front lines of climate justice, a podcast by the Global Forest Coalition. GFC is a feminist coalition of organizations around the world supporting forest conservation with a focus on gender justice, human rights, and social equity. In Roots of Resilience, we talk with coalition members and allies about what they're doing to advance real solutions to climate change and forest loss. Welcome to our new episode of Roots of Resilience. I'm Chitira Vijayakumar, and I'm talking to you from India. Climate change can be a very overwhelming topic to learn about. There's so much going on, and sometimes it can feel like all the news we're hearing is terrible. For instance, South America is living through one of the most extreme climate events the world has ever seen with unbelievable temperatures up to 39 degrees Celsius in mid-winter. June of this year, 2023, was also officially the hottest June ever recorded in human history. The ice in the Arctic Sea hit a record low, which is a very rare event. Sea ice is important because it helps to keep the Earth's climate stable, which is critical to protect our forests and the indigenous peoples and communities that depend on them. When sea ice melts, it causes further warming, which can cause more sea ice to melt. So it's a vicious cycle, basically. It also means that sea levels could rise even more, displacing millions of people which will impact the most marginalized amongst us the most severely. So yeah, like I said, sometimes it feels like there is no good climate news. But our intention with this podcast is to change that. We at the Global Forest Coalition aim to give you hope and to show you that not only is change possible, it is already happening. In every episode, we will speak to environmental defenders all around the world who have been implementing real climate solutions in their regions through gender transformative ways. So whether you're a seasoned climate change activist or you're just starting to learn more about the issue, this podcast is for you. Join us as we explore the science, the stories and the real solutions to climate change. First, we're going to go to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, to meet Maureen Santos. Maureen coordinates the National Advisory Unit of FASE, a Brazilian NGO committed to organizing and developing local, community, and associative work. Maureen coordinates the National Advisory Unit to bring issues like climate justice and struggles against agribusiness, and mining, all of this to the forefront, and connects the international agenda with the incredible work being done in the local territories of Brazil. In the imagination of the world, a lot of the time, um, Brazil is deeply, deeply tied with the Amazon, is very interlinked with the rainforests. And I'd wager that in the majority of cases, when people think of the rainforest, they're thinking of trees, they're thinking of rivers, they're thinking of animals, but very, very rarely are they associating the rainforest with humans, with indigenous people who live there, who have lived there since time immemorial, right? Um, So could you speak a little bit about that? Could you talk about why Um, humans are an integral part of the forest ecosystem and how that has been playing out in Brazil. Okay. Yeah, I just mentioned a little bit uh, about this. And we have this, the the indigenous people bring this. We don't have forests without peoples. So in Brazil, uh, the word, the sentence is very true. 
because when you arrive in these areas, the majority it's uh, uh, it's areas that belong to the state or areas that uh, belongs to a, a traditional communities and and indigenous people for uh, you talk about not only for right, right now, but we talk about since the colonization. Now uh, we have all the, this story, historical uh, debt in Brazil about the land who belongs this land. And same time during the our uh, uh, the, our last constitutions get right about the demarcation areas for indigenous people and also to uh, um, to create laws to title uh, the land also for the traditional communities. But when you go like for a conservation unity or other area that's already have a, a law for environmental protection, when you arrive there, uh, you have uh, 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 or indigenous communities uh, all you have the traditional com uh, communities there. And it's important to say, because also, I think the indigenous people is getting, especially in Brazil, is doing a very good job of the visibility around the world, you know? So people already connect more Amazon related to them. But at the same time, the traditional communities as the Quilombolas, the extractivists, uh, I don't know the words in English about their names, but you have uh, in Brazil, it's, it's so many, you know, it's so many different traditional communities who have their own culture, have their own way to take care of the land uh, 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 and ways of life that uh, it's completely invisible, not only for Brazilians, but also for outside. You really need to, to turn them visible because you only have biodiversity and forests protected still in Brazil because you have indigenous people and traditional communities in the land. So it's very important when you talk about the guardians of the forests, you know, or guardians of the biodiversity, it's very important to recognize their presence in their territories. And because of that, it's very, it's, it's a, there is a huge importance of the creation and the enforcement of laws that give them the rights to the land. You know? Because the rights to the land, uh, it's fundamental. It's like the main pillar for climate change, uh, 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 to face the climate change crisis, to face the ecological crisis. Because where is this population is keeping the land, you don't have the advance of mining companies, agribusiness, uh, energy, infrastructures and other kind of big uh, corporate or state investments that destroy and you lose uh, uh, the forests and also all that's included in that, you know? So uh, there is a, this big connection that the world really needs to understand and to support because still there is a lot of a romantical view about what nature is and about what is the forest and what is the Amazon. You know? So Amazon without people is not really Amazon and you need to put this visible as more you can. Absolutely, there is a romantic idea of forests and what they look like. Um, and they are reinforced every day through our mainstream media, uh, in, in educational systems around the world, where there is a constant erasure of um, the lived realities of uh, indigenous peoples and their incredible vast reserves of traditional ecological knowledge um, and their expertise, right? So all around the world, so when we speak to different um, people around the world for this podcast, we hear about how, you know, on top of the existing challenges that people are facing on the ground from climate change, now people are also facing the additional burden of false climate change solutions. So people are, um, local communities and indigenous communities particularly women and all the diversities in these uh, communities, they're all facing the brunt of, say, offsets or plantations or 
n number of false solutions uh, that are being promoted by some of the most by the UN uh, and by other mm -hmm. international bodies, right? So what is the story in Brazil there when it comes to false solutions? What are some of the ones that are impacting you the most? Yeah, we have a lot of false solutions that are all in, in this group of the solutions made by corporations, made by specifically for uh, agents that is destroying also they be like uh, um, recognized as the one that bring the solutions no to face their own problem that they create uh, we start here we can start about the carbon market that is the main metric for all the architecture this new architecture of the climate financing and the false solutions uh, we have this for decades already, but uh, specifically in the last 15 years, we have they're more connected to the forest approach. Uh, so there is, we, we FASI, né? my organization, uh, we, we are part of a Belen led group that's a, a, a collective of social movements, unions, NGOs, and specialists that. Uh, there is like 12 or 13 years that's bringing up this issue of uh, the against the offset, the forest offsetting, you no? Know? Because we we really believe that this uh, mechanism uh, of carbon marketing in forests uh, can bring much more pressure, not only to the the peoples that live in this forest, but at the same time. Uh, avoid the, 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 the public policies arrive in these places and change a lot of the way of life of this traditional indigenous population because all these projects and private contracts bring them uh, uh, adjustments and also uh, control and uh, a lot of new rules that they need to follow up and these rules change the way they live, you know, the way they treat the soil, the way they plant, the way they use the fire, the way they to to their to make their agriculture, that's the traditional agriculture. At the same time, they ignore a lot of the amazing traditional knowledge and practice as agriculture and other others, you no. Know? that can will be the real solutions as we believe you know so i think the the carbon market offsets in forests is one of the main ones but you have now this this lie of net zero that's and this the nature-based solutions that is the new trend inside the the climate change regime at the same time uh, you can see like all the corporations around the world in a lot of different areas already have their net zero targets. But when we really saw it, it's not really connected to the value chain of these corporation activities. It's more, uh, you see one of other items related to uh, energy and efficiency or something like that, but uh, the main changes it's not really changes. No, it's based on projects of carbon removal, and this come back to the forests. Come back to a spread of new monocultures as eucalyptus uh, and other kind of tree plantations. In the same time, uh, uh, projects in Georgian year that's uh, a really really. Uh, worry because you saw that you had a moratorium in the convention of biological diversity against this experience of engineer. Yeah, I think that was a really good snapshot of how complex these issues are and how it's playing out in Brazil. Um, we also like to remind our listeners that um, about the incredible work that grassroots land defenders and organizations like FASE are doing on the ground. So 
could you share with us one of your one of the most impactful ways one of your favorite ways in which your organization has been able to intervene in this situation um, and make a difference yeah, we have a different uh, um, uh, actions you now we have in more than a global uh, negotiations that you do uh, pressure and uh, to our negotiators not not to not open up uh, this kind of matter inside of the climate negotiations uh, and at the same time uh, there is a, a there is a, a bigger um, issues related to the, the areas that we work with in the territories because their, their, populace, their populations is facing a lot of pressure of these corporations. So you are demanding all the time by the communities uh, to do a, a, a courses of capacity building, to talk about this kind of mechanism so the, the uh, the community can not only have the information about what is it, because when you bring the, the projects of uh, forest offsets, carbon, carbon market offsets, uh, uh, they sell it as, as, a, as a great opportunity of uh, receiving income and a lot of issues. And of course, you have a lot of communities that's facing a big uh, and a huge situation of uh, uh, of needs, yeah, different kind of needs, because the we have to remember that to have an, uh, a, a war, uh, the one of the worst governments you had in our story, uh, uh, recent story, uh, that turned their back to the the countryside of Brazil and especially to the traditional indigenous peoples. So of course, when you come to projects that bring a lot of money and say that okay, you don't need to do anything, only need to keep whatever you are doing in the land, uh, you receive all this money to take care and also to capture carbon and bring this idea of a commodity that you can see, you can taste, you can smell, it's completely abstract. And it's very complicated to the communities understand what's going on, you know? So all these demands of the communities to do uh, talks about these issues, bring the perspectives and how it's it, it been in the national governance, international government, a very important tool today. Uh, first, uh, understand this, this context at the same time, uh, deal with that and also deal how to face uh, these this kind of proposals and pressures. And at the same time, they be more strong enough uh, to dialogue with uh, these these proposals, if they wish to that, because you always believe that the communities have to they have autonomy about what their strategies, what their their the way they are defending their land, you know. But you really need to focus in the information, the best information you can give to them, and show all this these uh, traps that these uh, false solution projects bring to the communities. There is a thousands of traps related to the private contracts, the time of concession, because sometimes it takes 30 years, 50 years of the concession that they give in these contracts. At the same time, all these, all these things that the contract created, like you play that like EMEF, like you have thousands of I forget the word now, but when the EMF give money to the to the countries, they give a lot of. Uh, 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 it's, I really forget the word. It, it's it exigencies. It's like I don't know. The countries need to 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 mold their attitude, to, to mold their policies, to adjust yes, in the yes. contracts. You know. And uh, it's the same for private contracts in the community. So, uh, so we are doing too many of these. Now you do the international work, you do the, this pressure to create a national law that really can have a system that can protect against this kind of 
distractions, but at the same time, support the community to get strong enough to debate uh, and have information to, to debate this kind of projects at the same time, they have their own autonomy to say no if they wish to say no, you know. And for this, one of the very important tool that we're believing also for this uh, debate is the, 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 OIT, uh, the International Labor Organization's Convention 169, that there is the protocol that the community can write down about the free uh, consulting, uh, uh, previous consulting, when you have any kind of project that you have any impact in the territory, in the communities, the communities can write down in a protocol how they wish to be uh, free and uh, uh, early consulting before the project starts, you know. And this tool is getting very important also for to, to strengthen, to get uh, more, more possibilities for the communities to defend them itself. Right, yeah. So, so what I'm hearing is that there's um, the response needs to be from many directions um, and FASE needs to support more than anything supports the autonomy of the communities and um, works with the decisions made by the communities themselves. That's fantastic. Um, if you could request from the international community, from the world that is listening to this podcast, one thing, if you could ask them for one thing which would um, to create support for concrete climate actions, for a regenerative and for real climate solutions in Brazil, what would you ask of us? How can we support this? I think first to give visibility for the for solutions that the communities bring, you know, and consider the traditional knowledge as the main knowledge you have. You know, because uh, generally you, when you talk about climate change, you only talk about the formal and official science, but there is this millenary sci sciences in the communities, you know, that uh, uh, it's very important to say that and give them all the space and all the, the visibility they need to spread the word that they have the real solutions. At the same time, uh, for consumers, it's important to understand when they are carbon neutral for any activity, they are thinking they are carbon neutral. They really need to understand which place in this world that this neutrality is getting made, you know? Because sometimes you buy some product or use an app, an app of transportation or an app of deliver food, or you, you go to stay in a hotel, or you pay for neutral, carbon neutral, your ticket, your air ticket. At the same time, you even care about where is this place, this corporation is doing projects to remove my carbon that I'm spending here. You really don't care about that. And sometimes, not sometimes, the majority of the cases, when you look, they are buying credits in regions that there is impact in the communities in the ground, in the communities in the in the biomas, in the territories, communities that have been pushed to, to enter in these horrible private contracts, communities that be pushing for their land um, and go to other places so they can, uh, the companies can uh, build a monoculture of any tree plantations to remove their carbon. So you have to, to make sure that all this debate of neutrality, uh, where this come from, where, where, where these removals come from and what is going on. Because if you don't have any kind of accountability, you keeping uh, masqueraded, keeping creating fake uh, solutions for 
middle class and people in the cities, uh, but at the same time destroying the livelihoods in the forests and in the territories. You know, so I think there is a a, a huge responsibility for people in the cities, for people in the north countries that is bringing this, pushing this kind of policies that believe, that really believe uh, that the the climate crisis only, uh, it's a synonym of uh, carbon reduction emissions, but it's not. Carbon crisis, it's part of an ecological crisis. It's much more than an issue. No? You have to, to think about this much more abroad that you can really have a social environment integrity about this kind of policies and measures. That was a really vital point, Maureen, because I think a lot of the times when, like you said, people choose the carbon neutral hotel or the tickets, they feel like they're making a, a good decision, an ecologically sound decision. But mm -hmm. those linkages between that and what it actually in reality transpires to on the ground is often deliberately hidden from us. It's hidden from people and you are asked to stop thinking at that point. You're asked to stop thinking at the point that you click the button that says add to cart or buy this particular uh, ticket or this book this room. You are requested to stop thinking and just feel good and take that good feeling and leave. But you raised a critical point. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Maureen, for speaking with us today and telling us the realities and the complexities of what it means to do work of this nature in Brazil today. And also for reminding us why it is important to keep persisting, to never give up, even in the face of what looks like insurmountable difficulties. And for showing us how when we keep going, when we keep fighting, the results will be there. So thank you so much again. You're listening to Roots of Resilience on the Front Lines of Climate Justice, a podcast by the Global Forest Coalition. Now we're going to travel all the way to Uganda to meet Kuriba David. Kuriba is a senior researcher and an environmental, climate and human rights activist who has led many campaigns against mining activities, agrofuels, monoculture plantations and more. He also tracks and analyzes the United Nations program on reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation in developing countries, otherwise known as uh, red projects in Uganda. Thank you so much, David Kuriba, for joining us today in the middle of what has been, I think, a hectic year for you in terms of field visits and research and work. Uh, thank you so much. We're so grateful that you made the time for us to join us on the podcast today. So when we talk about Uganda, it's one of those places in the world where I think most stories about Uganda that we hear today come to us through um, Western media outlets or through media outlets owned and operated by the global North, right? So the stories often, you know, are become one dimensional in a sense and might not actually capture a lot of the reality of life there. So how would you describe the country to somebody who has never been there? Uganda is a, a country that is found in East Africa. Uganda is a, a very, very green country. Uganda used to be the part of Africa before environmental degradation, uh, degradation came into play. Uganda is the current country that is turning into Nigeria because we have oil and gas mining. Uganda is, 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 is one of those few countries that do uh, rain-fed uh, rain agriculture. And uh, the natives in Uganda are very lovely. We have lots of uh, wildlife. 
we had very, you know, very vast forests. But now the challenge comes in with the current corporate capture, which brings in uh, uh, companies that do agribusiness, that do oil and gas mining. But generally, Uganda as a country, it wouldn't be that bad. But then uh, the nature of activities that are being carried out are the ones that are really trying to kill the part of Africa. But Uganda is a country which everyone would have loved to actually visit, including all of you. You should come, pass by, and uh, you see what we are talking about. It's actually still the pearl, though with some kind of poor governance style that is killing the beauty, but it is a country that is in East Africa and worth actually visiting. Yeah, definitely. This is, um, I hope to visit you all someday. Um, as I'm sure most of our listeners as well. So you mentioned that Uganda is a very green country, um, and but that also that there are a lot of environmental struggles, environmental degradation that is ongoing. Could you speak to us a little bit about that and whether climate change has, how climate change has impacted these existing issues? Yeah, thank you very much. When I talk about environmental degradation, you'll talk about oil palm development in areas that used to be very green. We have oil palm establishment in Karangara, in Mvuma, and these are islands in the middle of the Lake Victoria. Lake Victoria is one of the biggest freshwater bodies that serves about 10 countries that ends up in Egypt. So oil palm development is one key challenge that we have in this country. Then we have issues of flower farming by Rosebud in, in those international important areas, the so-called Ramsar sites, which are of international importance, and we see them happening. And of course, flowers are not food, but they are grown in wetlands. When wetlands, certainly these are areas that wouldn't be destroyed. We are talking about carbon trading for carbon trading. We have companies like uh, Green Resources, which is actually in Mozambique, Tanzania, and Uganda, and it is into carbon trading. We have Pran Vivo, one of the activities that we have done on the ground that actually uses community gardens, agrarian land, and uh, they plant trees in the radius of 70 meters, and eventually the canopy covers the agrarian area, and people end up being food insecure. So there is an activity also, several activities on oil and gas, oil and gas mining. And we are constructing one of the longest pipeline from Uganda to Tanga in Tanzania, which is around 1,430 kilometers. So you can imagine it will be heated. So if you look at the area that it is going to cover, around 120, that is around 30 meters from Uganda up to Tanzania, it is running through wetlands, it is running through forest. You're talking about indigenous communities depending on forest. We're talking about communities depending on those wetlands where they're going to be evicted. We are talking about even people's farmlands and the pipeline will be running through all those. And yeah. uh, then also the, the, the activities of, for example, uh, sugarcane plantations. Sugarcane plantations are actually encroaching on forests, on natural forests. And to us, that is also some problem of some sort in this country. If, if, if in this era we are talking about conservation, reducing emissions from degradation, deforestation, forest, forest degradation, and the country allows, for example, 21 miles of Goma forest, there is some Goma forest, which is in the, air, in the oil region, being defaced, being designated for sugarcane uh, growing by a company called Hoima Sugar. I think to us that is a very big setback uh, in a country. And uh, if you look at oil and gas mining in protected areas, in mushroom falls, you will realize that even animals have been migrated to other areas, but others will certainly have challenges to survive because of the nature of establishment of oil and gas mining. If you are talking about the Tienga, Tienga region, that is the mushroom landscape, which is uh, uh, mined by uh, the, the, the Total, Total company. So, I had talked about the pipeline, which is going to be 1,430 kilometers from Uganda to Tanzania. It will go through wetlands. It will go through forests. So if you are talking about 
indigenous communities, certainly they will have to be displaced. Agrarian land will certainly be taken uh, for pipeline. And this is a heated pipeline. And it's the longest because our oil is works. You are talking about establishment of uh, electricity lines, road network for servicing the, the, the heating points. They will be like 27 or 20, 27 points from here up to Tanzania. So all these, when you bring them together, uh, they are a challenge. But also carbon trading business for small uh, uh, agricultural activities, small peasants. Because you are, you are convincing communities on ground to grow trees and you pay them for the number of trees grown. Of course, the amount of carbon sequestered, certainly that is not something that is easily understood at local level. But people count trees, the acreage of your, of your area. So now you find you are planting at the distance of seven meters. But when these trees grow, the canopy on top does not allow sunshine to go through. And eventually communities become food insecure because now uh, you find the communities can no longer grow food crops. These are especially annual crops below the, the canopy cover. So like Pranivivo uh, activities, which is uh, promoted by Ecotrust in the very many districts of Western Uganda, Mucheni, uh, Koima, uh, and, the, and, 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 and other districts. So it becomes a very big challenge for communities because that is the first solution. Emission reduction is not done from this point of at the recipient level. It is done from source of production. So carbon trading promoted by Pranvivo and the Ecotrust, but also promoted by Green Resources, a country that has, uh, I mean, companies that have, that have establishments in Mozambique, in Tanzania, and in Uganda and largely they encroach on forest reserves. So those are some of or the few uh, examples that I could give. There are very many, if I could give them, but uh, those ones are the major ones that are leading, that are causing environmental degradation. It sounds like there are not only are there challenges from the existing, from climate change, for instance, and ongoing ecological challenges from that, but that they are being worsened and deepened by A, corporate uh, capture of the non-renewable energy sector and enormous infrastructural non-renewable energy projects like this oil pipeline, which are obviously going to be devastating uh, to the environment, as well as these so-called uh, you know, solutions to climate change that are being introduced, mm -hmm. like plantations and uh, carbon capture. And, and, mm -hmm. and like you rightly pointed out, the real work of cutting emissions is being sidelined, is being completely ignored, and all of the, it, it, all of the rest is being, uh, energy is being diverted to these false solutions, which are in fact making things worse. Mm. So in this, I mean, in this scenario, I mean, you could, I mean, there are so many challenges, it sounds like. So how are people, including you and, uh, you know, including experts and land defenders like you um, and your organization, how are, how are you responding to this massive crisis? In what way is your organization able to intervene in this very, I'm sure, complex uh, scenario. I think you have used the right word, complex. Complex is the word. Complex because the uh, corporations rule countries, rule African countries. I must tell you that this, some of these companies are even more powerful than our government because they decide what to be done, what to be followed, the way development to be taken, and what ecological uh, setup needs to be destroyed. So like you said, complex, it is true, but of course we need to fight. This is the only country, the only, we have one, we have only one Uganda to live in. At the moment we don't show that we have interest or we can say something or defend. Once we lose it, it goes once and for all. So what do we exactly do? First of all is to do community awareness. I think that is primarily the first thing to do because all these developments happen in communities, and it is communities that feel some of this pressure, the more, because they are the ones who lose land, they are the ones who actually lose some educational uh, schools because they are even shifted. 
or they make uh, community shift and they have to move very long distances. So awareness on the dangers related to uh, plantation agriculture. That is one thing that we do. I think community awareness, community consciousness, FPIC free prior informed consent, we strongly advise and uh, work with communities to ensure that for any development, for any project to take role, they must be consulted, that they must consent. But they also appreciate that there is climate change and most of these projects will finish, but communities might still be there. If we are talking about oil palm, oil palm lasts for only 25 years, and these companies are given tax waiver of close to 20 years. So they have five, like five years of probably working with them. But what will happen? So we strongly uh, work with communities, first of all, to one, appreciate that they need to always understand the kind of contracts that these companies sign. They need to understand the nature of employment that these companies give them. They also need to understand that they have one earth, they have one country, that the moment it gets challenges, the moment it soils die, soil die, the moment biodiversity is lost, the moment all tree cover is lost and climate change has hit them hard and hit everything around them, they are the ones to suffer the most. So that is on the point of creating awareness. But we also need to understand that government also gives out land that is held in trust for the people. So in that way, we engage government to ensure that something that is held in trust for the people must be respected. And where they don't listen, heed to our advice, we take them to court. We have taken to taken court, we have taken government to court severally on flower farming in Ultende Ramza site, we took government to court because we feel the wetland should not be destroyed. On Ugoma destruction, Ugoma is one of those parasitic forests in Western Uganda, and we took uh, the government to court because we felt that that forest was so important that if it went, still would have challenges with emissions because this is the forest that is in an area where oil and gas is being mined, and oil-related automobiles and infrastructure will be emitting a lot of emissions, which certainly require trees and forests to be absorbed. So we took them to court to better understand and guide and follow environmental and social impact assessment before uh, such destructions do happen. So uh, taking government to court is one of them. Creating awareness among these communities is different, but also we work with communities to ensure that while these trees are being cut, they also need to do boundary planting on the small plots of land that they remain with. But also we tell communities to resist issues of uh, carbon trading, where they are establishing plantations, alien, alienization, alienating the area, planting alien species in, in their environment, well knowing that uh, eventually the, some of the tree species, including wildlife, will be lost. So that now they don't, trees and the small pay that is given in terms of carbon trading does not compromise their, their, their food because uh, food production, food, food sovereignty is the basic, is the primary factor of security. The moment communities have food, they're able to store their own food, grow their own food, know how to grow it, where to sell it, what to eat, and the kind of food that they eat in terms of quality and quantity to us, that is key. That was, I think, what you said about the social impacts, the social and economic impacts of these projects is, is key to understanding really the what the real life impacts of these projects are. And as you very well know, the promotional campaigns around these uh, projects, right, is that, oh, it's bringing prosperity to these regions, it's bringing jobs to these regions. And so all of these myths um, are promoted a lot by governments, it's promoted in UN spaces, in UNFCCC spaces, that uh, these so-called false solutions are um, you know, are actually good for the community. So it's very important to hear from people like you who are on the ground, who are able to see firsthand the devastation it brings, not just ecologically or environmentally, but politically and socially, economically. 
um, it's really vital to hear about uh, what it has done to the social fabric, you know, of the, of the places where these projects are being implemented. So, uh, for example, if you are talking about crude oil pipeline, by now it would have started a long time ago, but now because of the several campaigns that we have on compensation, understanding biodiversity laws, looking at the route where the oil pipeline is going to go, it, it should avoid some sensitive areas of sacred natural sites, places of indigenous communities, because sacred natural sites are so potent sites that should be respected. Although, uh, because of the mushrooming Christianity and all that, they look at some of these areas as, as, as satanic areas. But these are potent sites that Africans used to respect so much. So if you're talking about the, some of these establishments, they should respect some of these sacred natural sites because they have a very big role they play in constituting and, and, and smooth running of nature. So those are the two and also including some plays, but also some projects that have already established, but because of the campaigns, whether they would be proposing to expand them the more, certainly there is some kind of, they curtail a bit, they reduce on the speed of expansion. And of course, uh, to us, it would be even more worse, but because uh, they, they are those checks, they are those checks somehow, We'll just have some small successes. You know, global advocacy, you don't have, you, you cannot uh, explicitly uh, register something big. But over time, some, some, some successes are registered. If you could tell us, you know, if, if those of us who are, though everybody who's listening, if the international community, if, um, if there was a way that we could support the work that you do, what would be the most helpful? How could we support um, these incredible projects that you are doing on the ground? Yeah, thank you very much. Already now you, you are you, you're helping out. By having this meeting that is globally being listened to, I think the, this is a plus. And uh, secondly, we need to do like more research. We can do more research on some of the pertinent issues to trace progress. For example, we have talked about oil palm. What is the progress of oil palm? What is the expansion area? Because uh, some of these projects, they start and end, but also understanding the magnitude, but also working with, trying to understand the feel of community. How do they feel now? How is it from the time it was established, midway and where they are now? What is, what is happening? So research information sharing is very important. And when such thing happens, for example, we we planning to go to uh, Doha, Doha, Qatar for, for UNFTC COP28. So these are some of the research areas that we take. If we're talking about solutions climate change, for environmental activities that are happening, we do research. And during uh, this uh, uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate UNFTC COP COP during those COPs, then we present those researches. We'll be having. Uh, Uganda delegation, you have East African delegation, you have African delegation, you present some of these issues, and eventually in the additional making, it helps to save nature. So what we are doing now, the discussion we are having now, of course there are other policy makers, you have people that are listening in, certainly they are picking something. You have people, including even those people that are into degradation, including companies themselves, they are listening in. If they're not listening in, they are allies, they are environmental officers, people link to them, they listen in. And this way, it can happen, it can also help in curtailing. But largely, we, all, we would always want to do research. When we do research, we can have some, a bit of exchanges, people to learn from what is happening. If there are some good cases that people can learn from, it could be an opportunity for them to learn from either our leaders who are decision makers or our communities who are opinion leaders to see how conservation really takes root. That could be super helpful. And uh, certainly uh, would have, you know, like uh, this meeting which we are having now, we could open it to, for example, uh, leaders. We can, we can engage leaders, but at some point we also give them topics to discuss or in a panel like this, you have some leaders 
also contributing and also being, being asked these questions and they respond to them. And that way, it will be satisfactory and we'll be working together and we'll be working towards saving the nation, saving nature. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's how it could, be. it could be working together, conducting research, engaging leaders, participating in NFTPC meetings and presenting some of these very case studies that we have on ground. And that way we'll be saving nature. Beautifully put, beautifully put. Makes uh, makes me so proud to be part of, uh, you know, to be part of a coalition that works with you and is, yes, trying to protect and preserve nature as well as everybody who defends it. Thank you so much, Kuriva, for that incredibly powerful interview. And I think one of the reasons why it was so powerful is because every story that you shared at its core is about the incredible power that lies at the heart of local communities. And this power, you know, in many instances, it gets divided and conquered by multinational corporations and governments and, you know, but when that power is actually coordinated, when that power is channelized into the good of the people, into the good of the land, then you have this and you have these stories of success, these stories of hope, these stories of resilience, you know, which is really what our podcast is about. So thank you so much again. Thank you for listening. Roots of Resilience was produced by the Global Forest Coalition with support from Bread for the World. Our theme music is by the Garifuna Collective with permission from Stone Tree Records. Be sure to join us for more episodes of Roots and Resilience and visit our website at globalforestcoalition.org.